All right, William Dyer here with Dyer Conversations. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast. If you've been uh, part of the channel, you know that we've been doing something on critical race theory over the past couple months. But today we have a special guest on to talk about that, and that is Miss Monique Dusan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, hey, let's uh, let's introduce you for people who might not know you. Um, go ahead and give yourself a quick introduction. Yes, my name is Monique Dusan, and I am the co-founder um, and president of the Center for Biblical Unity out in Los Angeles, California. And we are an organization, a Christian organization that exists to have safe and sane conversations about race, justice, and unity. And we do it from a historically Christian perspective. And so it is Christ first, scripture first, before we're looking at, you know, sociological texts or anything like that. We want to know how did the early church handle issues of what we would call ethnic partiality? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if, if anybody's read the New Testament, you realize that there was some racial and ethnic tension going on in the early church. So this, you know, the, the day and age that we're in right now in America with what's going on in our culture is nothing new. Uh, as the Bible says, nothing new under the sun, right? Right. So um, when I was doing, I, I started getting into critical race theory because, um, well, obviously everything was happening in 2020, right? The world uh -huh. was coming to an end. Everything was going crazy. And I had a young man who was like a younger brother to me. Um, you know, he's part of a church that I was part of, and he moved uh, across the country to take a job. And, you know, when when the George Floyd incident happened, I mean, he went off the rails about how, you know, um, you know, cops are terrible and, you know, white people are horrible. And he's a, and he's a white man, too. You know, all this stuff. And, um, you know, so I called him up to talk to him about it. And I had never heard of critical race theory. And I was like, what, what is all this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I started researching it and then it just so happened I was taking a class in school. So I wrote a paper on it. And as I was writing my paper, I was doing research and you are one of the people that I looked up who were talking about it. So that's there how I first, that's how I first came across you. Yep. I watched some podcasts with you and checked out um, your ministry. So that's when I was like, you know, I want to get her on the podcast one day and, and here we are. So thanks again for coming on. Um, no worries. I am, I am glad to be here and glad to be having this conversation and bringing it out to the body of Christ. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about in a little bit. But first, for those who don't know anything about critical race theory, uh, why don't you go ahead and kind of give your basic like introduction to people? Hey, here's what critical race theory is. Well, you know what? I'm actually going to read it right yes. from um, a book called Critical Race Theory by um, Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanich, who were both um, like pioneers in the movement, especially Gene Stefanich. Richard Delgado as well. Um, and they're law and professors at Alabama. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's see. It says Critical Race Theory is a movement. Um, it's a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And so one of the tenets of critical race theory says that um, racism is, is everywhere. It's endemic. And um, they would, I, I believe many critical race theorists would say that that is just ev evidential. Like we, we see that racism in order to understand that racism is everywhere, in some regard, you have to understand people's hearts. And, you know, because I, I look at racism, which I think would go against a lot of, um, or some of, not a lot of, some of the critical race theorists. But I do believe that racism can be systemic. I believe it can infiltrate systems. But I also believe that in order to infiltrate a system, it first has to infiltrate a heart. And so to say that racism is endemic, that it's 
everywhere. And we know this um, simply by just evidence. I would say, well, unless you've been able to talk to people and to have evidence behind the action that someone is doing, I can't just say that all um, white people are racist. Yeah, that's so. so go ahead. I was going to say critical race theory just seeks to understand or to seek out like um, where in society is racism taking place. And it wants to transform the relationships in uh, things like law, um, power, the economy, things like that, so that it would be more equitable so that we don't see like issues of racism popping up. But it's the belief that racism is always happening. And um, that people need to be speaking into systems or taking looks into systems to be able to transform those systems. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found in my research is that, you know, the definition of racism, while they do understand that there are individual acts, right? Like, you know, I could commit an act of racism against somebody else. They're more looking at it in a systemic set where it's like, it's not you doing something, it's the system of power that you are a part of, you know, or whatever that cultural system is, that is inherently going to elevate the white man and, and, you know, push down people of color minorities, right? So that was one thing I learned. But it is important because in any of these controversial topics, you always get people who like fly to the edges, right? Mm -hmm. People who just fly to the edges of the argument. And it's like, well, these are false dichotomies. So you had mentioned um, that race can't racism can be systemic. And I agree with that. Right. I mean, I think I thought I thought back to Nazi Germany. Right. Yeah. I'm like clearly there was some systemic racism going on there if there was ever yeah. an example of it. So it's important not to deny that. But then the real question comes down to is, is America does America. I think there's two questions. Does America currently have systems that are systemically racist? And the other aspect of that is people talk about how America was founded on racism. Right. Like the, the very structure, the very principles that we are built on, they say are racist. Um, but before we get into all those weeds, how did you get involved in critical race theory? Gosh, quite by accident or I, I think it's quite by accident, um, at least having the public conversations of it. I honestly think that a lot of what we hear um, from some critical race theorists or things that um, people would say, oh, that's critical race theory. I just, you know, grew up hearing, you know, so white people are racist. All white people are racist across all time and space. You know, that is, that was just part of the word on the street. I grew up in Los Angeles during the time of the LA riots in, I believe it was 91, 1991, maybe 92. Um, that was um, sparked because of Latasha Harlins and um, Rodney King. And so during that time, there was a lot of conversation about how white people think they should be able to treat black people, what racism is, what it means to be a black person versus what it means to be a white person in America. And so growing up with all that, it was just the way that my mind thought about race in general. Um, and then looking beyond that, getting into university at Biola, I studied sociology and there some of my professors also upheld this view of you know what does what does racism look like what is the definition of racism how how do we see racism happening around us how do we fight racism but there were just some things that were taken as um capital t truth that i don't know um 
I believe are, are capital T truths anymore, number one, and two, that don't align with the Bible. So for example, all people can participate in racism, whether I have power or not. So the new definition of prejudice plus power in looking at racism doesn't exactly speak to a biblical truth where our cultural definition would say, as a me as a Black person, I do not participate in racism, the definition being prejudice plus power. But in scripture, we don't see that. In scripture, what we find is that anyone can participate in in you know, ethnic partiality or ethnic favoritism. Anyone can create a system. It just takes a heart bent toward wickedness or two hearts, you know, hearts that collude together. And so yeah. this is where I take some some issue with it. Yeah, it's um it's interesting, you know, the the comments that I've gotten on my different YouTube podcasts, right? I mean, people, uh, there's been hundreds of comments and a lot of people have made that that comment and they're saying, well, I can't be racist because I'm whatever, you know, they're not white. So whatever race they are, they can just say, oh, I can't be racist. And then they go on to just claim all sorts or to say all sorts of racist things to me. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, it's so important when we look at any of these issues, people love to redefine terms, you know, and that's, like I said, that's the issue I was having when I was first talking to my, my friend is that he was using these terms in a completely different way then then I think that normal history and normal culture were using them besides, you know, kind of recently, you know, in the view of history. So we redefine racism, we redefine other terms, but we we leave behind this whole biblical worldview of the, the thing in the heart that just hates other people you know, for whatever reason, and, and we shift it to something of being about power. So I think you're right there. I think there's an issue with that. Um, but do you see a larger issue in our culture moving away from not just a biblical worldview, but moving away from objective reality in general to some sort of like postmodernist view, subjectivism and things like that? Because I, I see that playing in the critical race theory. So do you have any comments to make on that part? I think we do. We see it in things like my truth and getting away from objective truth to to it now being my truth, what I see is real. Um, I think part of that we see in um, like the Me Too movement or we see in even the, the, the concept of microaggressions. You mm -hmm. know, when I look at a microaggression, uh, I don't, I have no proof that someone, you know, may have done something from a racist motive or a racist intent, but because it was my experience as a minority, and I know we'll get into talking about like truth from the the minority or, um, you know, favoring the voice of the minority and things like that, but it's, it's less concrete truth and more um, subjective truth, my experience over something that we might see in, in scripture that is capital. Yeah, so you brought up the book by Delgado and Steph Ankick, and that's one of the, the books that I've read for my paper, and I cited it a lot. And so they give four basic tenets in that book. And one of the tenets, they say, is that, um, that people of color have a unique voice of color. And so when you read the context there uh, about what they're talking about, they basically say that if you put two people at a table and one of them are white and one of them are black, let's say for the sake of this conversation, that truth is going to be defined by the black person. It does not matter what the white person has to say. It doesn't even matter what evidence the black person has. It's just a matter of 
their felt experience. Right? Yeah, I believe that's under the narrative tenet. Um, and it does talk about um, minorities having a distinct ability to speak into issues of race and racism because of our past experience with, with racism, because of our present experience with racism. And so, um, and it may, it may not actually be the narrative tenet, but um, that, that we would have a unique insight into that. And so because of our unique insight, our voice should be given a unique weight in the conversation. But see, I, I think there's actually an element of truth to that, right? Like, I think that, let's say, uh, you know, you, so you grew up in LA, right? Mm -hmm. And you grew up through some pretty controversial times there in LA. I didn't grow up in LA, mm -hmm. right? I didn't grow up over there. I grew up here over the East Coast. So for you or for us to speak about what it was like during those times, you do have a unique voice to that, mm -hmm. right? However, that voice still has to be based on some sort of objective reality. And it can't just be completely subjective to how, you know, it's like, I don't have to just accept what you have to say because you're the one who experienced it. Would you agree with that? I think so. I would probably say that experience doesn't actually necessarily mean um, capital T truth or objective mm -hmm. truth. I can have an experience with a white person that was racist. Okay, that's my experience. My experience may be true. Does that mean that all white people across all times, places, and spaces are racist? No. And so, or participate in racism? No, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that. And so I think we we would do um, well to thread through experience versus truth. And at what level do we weigh someone's experience versus making that experiential um, situation truth? Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, I don't think it's good for one side of, of this discussion to say, well, you know, I don't believe in critical race theory, so I'm not going to listen to anything that minorities have to say about their experiences regarding racism in this country or in their life or in their family or whatever. I think that is presumptuous and arrogant mm -hmm. and unkind, you know, especially if you're a Christian. Yeah. Because as a Christian, you know, if if I have, and it doesn't matter if this person is a brother in Christ or not, but if I have a person who who I know and they're telling me about their lived experience I at least have to give something to that and go, okay, well, they feel this way. Like this is, this is their experience. And so how do I help bring them out of that, you know, and bring them to a, to a place of reconciliation with me, if I'm the person that they have an offense with or, you know, to whatever larger system. So I think there's a balance there, which is why, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on here, because, you know, I, I like to have conversations about this and I don't find that people can have legitimate conversations with about this topic because it always turns into something where it's like you're either 100% on this side or 100% on this side and you're either like part of the problem or you're you know you're a racist and it's like hold on a second like why can't we just talk about this issue have you found similar situations like when you're talking about this to people that people are just like planted their flag and they refuse to learn or move or anything like that. Have you found that with people? I have. I think I've seen it across the spectrum on both sides. So people who would say CRT is the devil and racism doesn't exist. And, um, you know, we had a black president all the way to people who say CRT is um, 
you know, can be or should be considered a biblical truth because all truth is God's truth. And, um, you know, that that racism is endemic. It's everywhere. Every, you know, white person participates in racism. And I've also met people who are in the middle who are wanting to learn and understand and hear on both sides and try to investigate. And I've seen those people, I feel like, in every ethnic category. And so it's not just that, you know, there's some category of older white male who is evangelical, who is like racism doesn't exist. And it's not just the radicalized black person who's on the other side saying, see, racism is everywhere. I've seen it across ethnic categories of every group who can participate in every category. I mean, it's, it's really comical sometimes when you when you see something on, uh, you know, TV or the Internet and you get this like really like high strung, just super lost their cool young white person yelling at a black person mm-hmm. that they're racist. Yes. You know, and that they're, that they're part of the system of power. And it's like. I don't know. This is kind of interesting. You know, um, I don't know. Well, that's to me where it goes more to worldview than anything i think even more than skin color this is about worldview Mm -hmm. and so you know it doesn't matter if i am black i to some degree if i am not speaking the words of the right ideology i will be kicked out of my tribe and now i'm a part of a different yeah now i'm a part of a different tribe and as long as you are white and you're speaking the right ideology you know if it if it's um, more of a woke social justice narrative you will be accepted by the tribe in the black community we'd say we'd invite you to the barbecue you know like you'd be able to come and sit down and 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 participate with us for me i would be seen as someone in a pre-encounter phase someone who isn't aware of their blackness who isn't aware of the imp- oppression that's truly facing you know black people people, I'm, I'm just completely unaware. I'd be an Uncle Tom. I'd be a coon. I'd be, you know, a lot of these derogatory terms. And yes, a white person who holds to the correct ideology would be able, and this has happened, to call me a racist, to tell me that I am oppressive, to, you know, say all of these slanderous things because I am not on the right team. Yeah, I mean, that's that's literally something I was going to ask you about as far as backlash goes, because I was having some conversations with people about this, you know, and they bring up, you know, their little talking points. And, um, you know, like you said, try to categorize it like, OK, all white people are the problem, all minorities are oppressed, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I would say, well, what about, you know, what about some of these more popular um, minorities who are coming out and are critical of critical race theory? who say, no, we don't believe in systemic racism. No, we love America. You know, no, this country wasn't founded on the, you know, these racist principles or, you know, whatever. They're, they're, they're speaking against that narrative. Mm-hmm. And literally the response is, well, they're sellouts. They're Uncle mm-hmm. Toms. They're coons. And we're doing it for the bag, for the money, for, you know, for all that. Like even even down to our conversation, how mm-hmm. we currently are participating in racism, you being a white man asking me questions, me giving you answers that people would think you want to hear that I think you would want to hear and things like that. How, you know, oppressive that is for me and things like that. Like to some degree, it's like you hear the conversation that black people are not a monolith, but yet as soon as a black person speaks out in a way that's different we get kicked out of the tribe because we're not going along with the narrative and so I think the backlash comes I think that there are you know minorities who would say systemic racism isn't you know real in any facet I don't agree with that 
I do think that we need to look deeply into the system though. So when we look at the judicial system um, or the legal system, which critical race theory was originally meant to address um, from its like grandfather critical legal studies, I don't know that when I look into to all of those systems that I would say, well, every um, every piece of the legal system or every piece of the judicial system is racist or it is it is upholding racism specifically because we see disparity in number. And so mm-hmm. I think that that there could potentially be pieces of the legal system that might need to be um, reevaluated or restructured, sure. I, I think I could be, you know, willing to have that conversation or or um, investigate that more. But to say, well, you know, across all time, spaces, and places, every piece of the legal system in America is, you know, racist. I don't think that 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 that's true. And then if we take it a step farther and we look at someone like Ibram Kendi, who believes that racism is being um, either perpetuated or fought against, it to me, and, and that's across the board in every structure on the earth. And so, you know, he is really a proponent of saying, um, you know, racism is, is here and it's everywhere. And either you are racist or you are actively being anti-racist, but every structure is continuously promoting racism unless someone is actively working to counter that. I don't believe that. I, I just, I don't believe that because that, that also means that when we look in the church, the church being a structure, Mm-hmm. That we're seeing racism continuously perpetuated within the church. I I don't I don't believe, now can can racism be a part of a church? Sure, but that doesn't mean that the capital C church is continuously perpetuating racism. Yeah, I, I mean you spoke a lot of truth there, and there my mom was kind of running in a lot of different directions. But one of the things that you had talked about is the legal system, right? And so. You know, this is one of the things people would blast me on YouTube. Oh, critical race theory. It's a it's a legal study. It's not taught in, you know, in public schools and it's not meant for that. And you don't know what you're talking about. And and I'm like, you know, I've read the books like, you know, I've read a few dozen books now, you know, either for or against it or talking about it in some sort of way. It's like, yes, I understand it started off as a legal, you know, critique, right? I mean, Derek Bell, like I get that Harvard Law School, like he's looking at critical race theory or he's looking at the legal system and, and, and you know, advancing critical race theory. However, it's it's been modified from that and brought down to the popular level through people like, you know, you got this book right here, Introduction to Critical Race Theory by Delgado and Stefankic. You have um, uh, White Fragility. You know, like so, like some of these books that are more on the popular level, they are proposing critical race theory outside of just a legal critique. It's about everything, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know how people deny that. Like I don't know how people who are advocates for critical race theory deny that. But when you look at the system of America, are there laws that could be biased against one group or another, or whether it's for or against them? Yeah, like, sure, absolutely, right? But have you ever had anybody actually point you out a specific law? No, and I would I would probably even push back on what you're saying and say, I don't know that there are laws on the books right now that actually say, well, it's okay to discriminate against this group of people like we had during Jim Crow, or, you know, that like we had, you know, 50, 60 years ago, I would say by and large, if not 100%, like people are extremely careful to make sure that every law 
is meant to be um, fair and just toward all people. Now, and this, this is what I was referring to when I was talking earlier. Now, when we look at the application of those laws from individuals, Mm-hmm. you might see someone's heart bent toward evil. Does that mean that there's an entire system that is now wicked, corrupt, unjust? Potentially, if I have everyone in you know, the Los Angeles County court system that is bent toward seeing Hispanic men go to jail, that or you you know what you might not even need everyone in the system you might have a couple people who mm-hmm. you know send send these notes through or um don't allow certain cases to be heard and things like that and yes you can get a system but does that mean that every piece of the legal system across America is now um corrupt i don't think so the same way when we get the conversation of defund the police well we need to defund the police and this is not my argument but there's we need to defund the police because of the systemic racial issues that we see with policing well sure you might have a precinct that is racist where Mm -hmm. all the cops in that precinct are racist does that mean that across the board from la to roanoke we now need to you know defund every precinct no no we don't we don't do that we need to you know i would say look more carefully maybe have some retraining maybe consider what are other possibilities aside from racism yeah, one hundred percent. Like you know, that could create the disparity. Sorry about that. No, you're good. I, I was just gonna say when I when I point out to people again, I I often try to point out to people certain things. Like, well, here's what I'm I'm looking at, and I don't get good answers back. I just get people attacking me. You know, either calling me names, right, ad hominem arguments. You know, or basically just telling me like you don't know what you're talking about and moving on. But they don't ever deal with the issue. And so I, you know, I ask people like, okay, if you think that the system is is completely racist. Like, show me a racist law. Like, I'm I'm with you. Let's shut it down. Let's have it change. Let's let's yeah. write our congressman. Like, you know, nothing, right? And they'll oh, America's built on racism. I'm like, okay, well, look at the Declaration of Independence. All people are created equal, right? Everybody, same rights. And the point that comes back is, well, yeah. What about slavery? And what about this? And what about that? And you made a mention here. It's like, look, there's a difference between the principle and how we implement the principle, right? So there could be a law like you can't you can't smoke marijuana, right? In certain states. Now you can in like a bunch of states. But like like that was that like does that's, not apply here in California. Yeah. Well, no, really in Virginia anymore, it doesn't apply either. We just changed it to a civil penalty. So pretty much nobody cares anymore. But back back in the day, let's say two years ago, back in the day, you couldn't smoke marijuana. Well, you may have a cop who only will arrest black people for that crime. Is that mm-hmm. racist? Yeah, that's racist. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's not cool for you to arrest a black guy and not arrest the white guy or the Chinese guy or the, you know, Hispanic yeah. guy or whatever. Like, that's not okay. But you figure those things out through, you know, looking at what that guy's doing and implementing it. But you look at the law itself, the law is not inherently racist. And I mean, it doesn't have to do with marijuana, but just anything like point me a law that is racist and I'm all about changing it. But I, yeah. I don't know what to tell you, like, as far as if you can't do that, you can't just make comments and say the whole system is racist. And for me to go, oh, yeah, OK, like, no, yeah, I want to call you out on it. Show me something that is. Um, so you've gotten a lot of backlash. Um, you, do you speak at churches, right? I do. Yes. Both my ministry partner and I, we both go and we do trainings at organizations. We speak at churches, conferences. So yeah. do you get backlash at churches? I have. Yes. 
All yeah. right, I got to hear it. Tell me. People people who walk <laughs> up, and it's usually like white middle-aged women who will walk up to me and just be like, you're so racist. Um, hi, still black. And, yeah, nice to meet hi. you too. You know, nice to meet you. Yeah, and I mean, praise God, I've gotten, I think, a little bit better over, you know, the course of time that we've done this. Um, and my ministry partner, Krista, is usually right there to help, you know, kind of buffer some of that um, because I'm still human and a work mm-hmm. in progress, you know, so, <laughs> you know, um, but I think that's, that's probably a lot of what I get at, at conferences or pushback and like, um, like I just had one recently where I was um, more accused of just, you know, standing for capitalistic ideals and the capitalistic ideals are just hurting the minority communities and, you know, ands and ands and ands, but I'm like, you know, you're standing here with your Starbucks cup and your iPod, you know, AirPods. And so there's that. Um, but yeah, I think it's just more of, I'm letting white people off the hook and, um, you know, just racist in, in the words that I'm speaking, but, you know, my goal and Krista's goal too, is to speak the scripture. Like, I don't care if you know what I think necessarily, you know, it's what does the scripture have to say when we exegete the text? What does it, what does it say about ethnic partiality? We don't usually use the word racism because we don't find the word race or racism in the scriptures. We find the word ethnos, which is translated into ethnicity, which still doesn't necessarily refer to to the ethnicity that we're talking about today or the ethnic that that we'll see in our current culture. But when we look, um, there's no that says don't be racist but Mm -hmm. what we do find is that we shouldn't have partiality we shouldn't have favoritism we shouldn't have slander we shouldn't have hatred and those things based on ethnicity would be what we would consider our present day racism yeah what are some of what are your summer like go-to bible passages or context that you kind of like hit on to say this is what the bible says about this issue Ephesians, all of Ephesians, just come on with Ephesians, um, Colossians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, um, Genesis 1, we live in Genesis 1, um, mm-hmm. just because of, you know, our creation identity, doesn't matter, you know, who you were, whether you are a believer or not, um, we all are created with the image of God. And if we are all created with the image of God, then, you know, you're no better than me and I'm no better than you. We look in the Old Testament to define justice. You know, many people say that um, that that the gospel, you know, is 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 the so is a social justice narrative or it's a social justice gospel and, you know, things like that. Well, no, like the gospel is something very specific and we define justice by going to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so we use Leviticus and um places in Deuteronomy to look at justice and how we treat one another. And so looking at Ruth and Boaz um, in regards to, to just laws and, you know, how to participate with one another. So the yeah, goal fact, is really to it, use it all. If you, yeah. And you, it kind of sounds like a whole theological package that you're bringing. And I mean, it really is. I mean, the Bible talks about all this, right? I mean, the very beginning man and woman were created in God's image. So there's like the whole concept of every human being is created in the image of God and has some sort of inherent respect that you should give them, you know, no matter who they are uh, or what they've done, you know, how marred that image is, everybody has the image of God. And so when I was in Maryland years ago, I was a minister at a church up there and we had some, we had a little ministry where we would uh, bring some inner city kids 
uh, you know, down to the church because we were like 10, 15 minutes south of Baltimore. So we'd go in, we'd pick them up, we'd bring them down to the church and, and we'd have them, you know, there for youth group and stuff like that. And, you know, the the place where our church was at was kind of in the suburbs of, of you know, the nice area, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you get these half million dollar homes and, you know, these kids are playing lacrosse at $20,000 private schools, you know, sort of a deal. And I, I talk to those kids all the time and would teach them these principles like, hey, listen, you have to understand, like those kids, right? They lived completely different lives than you. They're gonna, they're gonna have completely different understandings of the world, but your job is you are a Christian and your job is to show love to them, right? Like they are in the image of God as much as you are the image of God. Mm-hmm. And you are not to show partiality to them because of, you know, that they're rough around the edges because they have a different skin color because they don't go to a private school because they live in the city. They don't live in the suburbs. And so like when that kid I told you about was blasting me, calling me a racist and calling me all, I was like, do you not remember all of these yeah. lessons that I taught you? Like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So the Bible speaks to this a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of, If you look at the law of Moses, just in general, and how God told Israel to treat one another, I I mean, just that in general was like giving respect and love to the downcast and the oppressed, you know? So, yeah. And I think, I think too, it's important to highlight that, um, you know, a lot of the laws were given specifically for the Israelite community. Like, Mm -hmm. how do we treat each other? And this is where I think Krista and I really want to speak into the church, not to say, you know, that having a voice in culture isn't important, but the way we are, we are conditioned to treat each other in church and why, um, you know, true biblical teaching is really important is because we have to understand the, the guidelines by which God has set up the the parameters or barriers for how we treat one another. Yes. I'm going to treat you a certain way because you're an image bearer. And there should be a way in which I treat you as a child of God and, and the way that we interact based on the fact that we are brothers and sisters. And when we look back into the Old Testament, how God set up for the Israelite community to treat each other, we can extrapolate some of those things to see how we should be treating each other as a Christian community. Mm-hmm. Amen to that, man. I, I don't understand, like... I don't have a problem talking to people about this issue. You know, even if somebody were pro critical race theory, as long as they're not being like ridiculously obnoxious, like hating on me, I would sit down and have a conversation with them. You know, if they're not sitting there, just, just cursing me out and calling me all sorts of names. Like if they would just want to talk to me about it and say, well, this is why I believe in it. Like I have no problem talking to people about this sort of thing, but I have found that churches, it's like, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and I don't know if that's like just my experience over here on the East Coast, just the churches I know. Like, you tell me, are you finding that as well? Like, churches are, you know, when you say, hey, I'd like to come in and give my presentation, and they're like, uh, we don't want to touch this. Some. Um, Krista had had an, uh, an example of that or an experience with that recently, where it's like, you know, even they, okay, so an organization asked her to come in and to do something like on parenting. Um, and now Krista has two degrees in theology. Okay. And so, um, and from like a reputable school, it's not like, you know, the little, like little seminary on the backwoods of, you know, some foreign country or nothing like that. Like, it's like, she's legit. And so they wanted to come in and like talk about parenting. 
And when they realized in Googling her name that she was um, co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity and that we address critical race theory, they pulled out and was like, no, we don't want even the association like even the smell of the smoke on your garments to be associated, you know, we don't want to be associated with you because we don't want to have any part of that conversation. I have seen churches who take that same position. We don't want to have any part of this conversation. It We don't find the words critical race theory in the scripture, so we're not going to address it. Then we see, you know, other churches who are completely embracing critical race theory and social justice. And then we see, you know, churches who I think, and rightly so, you know, if not from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, at least in small groups are making sure mm -hmm. that their people are addressing it. And then they usually in the larger context will have more conversations about justice from the pulpit. Yeah, I can understand. Like, I totally get it. Like, there, there's a time and place to talk about things. And there's a context of as well. Maybe it wasn't good to talk about it in 2020, like when things were heated, right? Like, maybe you want to wait a few months. Like, okay, I get all that tack. But like you said, in some way, shape, or form, you got to you got to integrate dealing with this issue. And here's why I think so. Okay, this is my personal opinion. If I'm a regular church member, and I live in the world six out of seven days of the week, right? I am hearing all this stuff all over social media, all over the news, all at the workplace. Like I hear about all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world, what everybody else believes. If I don't have a biblical perspective. You know, if I'm not hearing of, I hear 30,000 voices during the week. And if I don't hear the voice, you know, of God on Sunday about this issue, I'm kind of left in the dark. I don't really know what to believe about it. You know, I don't really understand. Maybe, maybe I think I'm having a biblical view, but my, because I don't study the Bible like a, like a preacher does or like a seminary professor does, I'm just way off in left field, but I think I'm good. So I think churches need to integrate it and talk about it more. Um, and I, I don't know why they don't, I, I, I guess they, you know, they don't want the controversy, but I don't read in the scriptures where you can be a Christian and stay away from controversy completely. You preaching good now. Yes. <laughs> and it, you know, here's the thing. It, it, it not talking about critical race theory is not going to get us anywhere. It's not mm -hmm. going to, you know, avoid the controversy because hello, the controversy is here. Hello, we have culture now knocking on our door telling us as Christians, when are you going to do justice? With a, a skewed view of what justice is because they don't have the word. We need discipleship. We need teaching from a historically Christian perspective. That is what the church needs. So that when things like critical race theory and critical race theory isn't going to be the last, um, you know, aired view or you know, skewed you to approach the church. How are you discipling your people to understand this here does not line up with the word? It just doesn't. We can't run from a conversation and then just act like it will never impact us. The reality is just like you said, we're in, we're in the culture. We're going to work five to six days a week. And then we come into the church and then, you know, we don't want to address the things that are really happening out there. How do we prepare our people to be able to go out and to stand strong? Another thing that I would say too is, um, you know, and part of, part of my starting CFBU was because of what I, what I was seeing, um, coming against white people specifically in regards to just being called out of their name, being targeted. This was in 2020 and things like that. And so 
you know, if I am a pastor and I'm not, but if I, if I were a pastor, you know, of a church and my church had white people in it, you know, to any degree, how would I be able to address some of the pain and issues that they're facing every day of the week? And then coming into the church, I'm just going to act like that pain doesn't exist. The same thing with, with minority communities, you know, we are, we are discipling and loving on people who live out in the world. Now they are not called to be of the world, but they do live in the world. And so how do we address the things that they are going to face in the world? Yeah. See, now you're preaching. I'm trying. <laughs> no, man, you gave me a good lead in. Yeah. I, I'm just glad to hear other people talk about it. Cause I feel like, you know, sometimes it's like the Elijah syndrome where you, you look at God and you're like, am I the only one who's, who's mm -hmm. doing this fight right now? Um, because really in the circle of people that, that I kind of know, I mean, outside of, you know, I'm in the apologetics community, right? So like, I see all that stuff, but if you take that out of it and you just talk about like actual people that I, that I run with, um, I don't see people talking, you know, all my Christian friends are preachers and ministers, church leaders talking about it. I don't see uh, curriculum on it. I don't see people in any way, shape or form having a conversation. And, um, you know, I mean, I've even had pushback from people when I was doing my, my podcast series on it, you know, basically telling me like, you shouldn't do it, or you better get prepared, or Ooh, have you really thought that through? And I'm like, I don't understand, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not way off in left field. I'm literally just presenting evidence and wanting to have conversation to learn about this and showing people, hey, hey, here's some stuff that I've studied. What do you think about it? And that's, again, why I'm bringing you on, because it's like, I want to talk about it. Like, I want, I want to progress as a human being as well, because one of the things I said in one of my podcast episodes is that we no matter who you are, you should sit down at the table with a person who has a different perspective and be willing to listen and talk to them, you know? And so I'm a white guy. I grew up on the East coast. I would say I grew up probably like lower middle class. Like, you know, we had enough food on the table, but we weren't eating filet mignon, you know, we weren't going out and doing all that sweet stuff, but you know, I, I'm not black. I didn't grow up in the inner city. I didn't grow up in California. I didn't grow up in Michigan. You know, I didn't have a Hispanic dad, you know? So like, those perspectives okay let me hear from you let's talk about it let's let's learn from one another but i don't have i don't hear people having those conversations uh in churches unfortunately so you've gotten some pushbacks in churches what would you say to church leaders about why they need to have this like i know we kind of talked about it but like if you were talking to a church leader right now and they were like no i don't want to deal with it what would you say to them i would say that your people are dealing with it so they're, de they're dealing with it through diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. They're dealing with it through um, the books that they're being told to read at work. They're dealing with it and they have questions and the Bible actually has answers. People are wondering, well, how do I, you know, have a conversation with this person? Or how do I have a conversation with that person? Or, you know, what is reconciliation? And does the Bible teach racial reconciliation? People have questions. And if we, as leaders within, um, within the church, we shy away from that. I believe that we're doing a disservice to, you know, the people who are looking for wise counsel. And so, you know, what we don't want to do is not address something and then leave room for, um, 
a, a wrong worldview to come in and then to kind of siphon those people off to that worldview. And I think that's what's happening with critical race theory. People are like, well, the church doesn't want to talk about race. The church doesn't want to talk about justice, but look at cri critical race theory and look at the churches that are embracing critical race theory. They talk about justice. They talk about race, but they also a lot of times bend more progressive. And that stream allows for many other things to come in, including um, LGBTQ plus theories, feminist theories, you know, like they're all hooked together. And so when we aren't addressing the issues that our people are facing, we kind of, you know, leave a bit of an open door there for something that is theologically incorrect to come and, you know, sweep them off. Yeah, I, th I think you're so right. Um, one of the things that I discovered exactly what you just said, that the concepts of the LGBTQ, you know, queer studies, even, I didn't even know this was a thing, fat studies. Fat you know, studies, child studies, ableist yeah. studies. All those things are literally all connected because, I mean, I, I believe they're based on postmodernism, but we're not going to get into that, but they are all connected, you know, and so if you're going to buy into one, it's a worldview system, right? So you're going to leave behind the traditional Christian worldview system, even though you claim you're a biblical Christian, and you're going to tie into all these things, and hence you get progressive Christianity, which is really an eroding away of the authority of the Word of God for this sort of subjective feeling. And this, I think it ties into the heart of our culture, which can be motivated for good, right? So here's what I mean. I think our generation, the one that we're living in now, desires to make a huge impact. Just, I, I want to make an impact, right? Like, if you look at churches that go, hey, we're going to have a revival and we're going to invite in this speaker, you're not going to get that many people to come. If you go, hey, we're going to have a 5K run, you pay to run, we'll give you a t-shirt, but we're going to take that money and donate it to this cause, you'll get people from the community coming yeah. out in droves to pay you so they can run your little race. Like People want to make a difference. And so yes. are there issues in our culture? Yeah. Are there, are there racist issues in our culture? Yes. Are yeah. there social justice issues? Yes. And we need to deal with them. And when the church is silent and they don't do anything about it, and then you have another group that says, hey, we're doing something about it, well, then these Christians, they, they tie into that because their heart is, I want to make a difference. I want to make a change. But the real Christian church has the correct view of justice, like you talked about. It just needs to be taught. Mm -hmm. But we also need to do something. Like, don't you think that there's actually a critique to give to churches, to some churches, not all of them, but to some churches like, hey— maybe you should look introspectively and say, well, we're not doing anything. Hmm. Like we're just sitting here at church and not doing anything to affect the culture. And maybe that's the reason why people are getting swept away. Yeah. I think, um, I think on one, on the one hand that comes through discipleship. And so as I am discipling my people, people will, or should at least understand um, God's biblical laws for justice and what God has instructed, like in the Old Testament, the Israelite community. And we can, we're, we are a creative people. We can get creative about that today. Now, if I am talking about, um, you know, how do I reach, you know, the non-believer? Well, that's going to be evangelism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how are we spurring people on to evangelism? That's the Matthew 28, 19. How do I, um, you know, as, as the church being the called out ones, but also being the ones who are sent. How do we go and do evangelism? I think that is where we'll see a lot of change in culture because we'll also be able to see a lot of change in hearts, but it's not, um, 
you know, Christianity isn't just something that I just talk about, you know, in my little family, my little enclave, and then we never take it beyond that. Absolutely. So um, we talk about churches, uh, not wanting to talk about critical race theory, some of them buying into critical race theory. Um, Some of them have no idea what it even is. But we've talked about a little bit off camera, you you're creating curriculum or have you pushed out some curriculum recently uh, about this issue. So what is it called and how do how do people get a hold of it? Yeah, so we created a curriculum called Reconciled. And Reconciled speaks to our reconciliation in the body of Christ. So as believers, I am not a proponent of racial reconciliation. I believe that reconciliation happened um, at the cross. It happened with Jesus. And we see um, we see evidence of this in 2 Corinthians 5. But then we also see the familial wording in Ephesians that we are brothers and sisters. And so when we look at um, the idea of being reconciled, what does it mean to be reconciled to God the Father and to one another? But then how do we walk in unity according to Ephesians 4? So yes, I do believe that Christians are reconciled. And we also can have conversations of how do we walk in unity? You know, so um, the, the, the curriculum really focuses on both. Like, what does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to walk together as family? How do I, you know, walk with someone or have difficult conversations with someone who may be different than me, who may, you know, have a different thought process than me. And so we dig into that. It's a six week curriculum. And again, focuses on our biblical reconciliation, much of which is found in um, or conversations that should be founded on our identity in Christ. You know, who are we as believers? As believers, we are children of God. If we are children of God, what does that mean for our, our familial relationship? And based on that familial relationship, how do we go forward together? So you can find it on our website at centerforbiblicalunity.com. And you can just click that reconcile button and it'll, um, it's a digital download. So it'll download right to your computer and you can start it or you can order um, like the small group option and do it at your church. Very nice. So I'll put a link to uh, that in the description of this podcast, wherever, whatever format somebody's listening to this, just check the description. It'll be in there. Um, so you could download it straight. It doesn't cost anything. It costs nineteen ninety nine okay. ninety five. Yes. Good. But yeah, once and- you pay for it, then, and, and that's for the individual license. If you get a small group license, that's a different price. And if you get a large group license, that's a different price. Yeah, totally, totally be worth it. Um, you know, supporting the ministry as well. Obviously we want to, we want to support this because, it's important. You know, we need to make, as a church, we need to teach our people, but we also need to to make those positive changes in our culture. I like how you reference Ephesians because, um, actually, this right here, mm-hmm. this is like a commentary that I wrote on Ephesians back in the day. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, when I was trying to figure out, it was like a bucket list item. I was like, hey, I want to write a commentary one day. Um, not that I got to publish, but I was just doing it. And so I picked Ephesians because I love the book of Ephesians. And I love how in Ephesians 4, it doesn't tell you to obtain unity. It doesn't tell you to fight for unity. It doesn't tell you, it tells you to preserve. Maintain. Yeah, maintain it, right? Unity was given to us by God. Look at John 17. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So I love it. I love that idea that as Christians, like we have a message. That's what frustrates me so much is it's like, we have a solid, robust message to talk yes. about what the issue is right now with critical race theory, biblical justice, like you talked about, right? Our culture is completely turning that concept of, of justice around as what they mean by it, and we need to speak truth into that. 
racism, mm-hmm. right? And ethnicity. We need to speak truth into that. And then unity. What does reconciliation mean? Like you said, so beautiful to think about as Christians, how we can live that in the church and go, mm-hmm. look at this melting pot of a church that we mm-hmm. have, and we all love each other. And we don't buy into that narrative because we know that Christ has saved us all. Yep. You know, gosh, I love that. And that's why I'm like, the gospel, man, like we got to get the gospel yes. out there and we have a yes. message to preach. And it's just frustrating that, that to me, the churches are so scared to talk about it because I feel like this is what we are supposed to do. So that's my hobby horse. What are some positive things that you would call Christians and churches to do outside of the the teaching aspect? And, you know, I, I know you talk about discipline. I'm all 100% individual discipling, but what are some things a church can do collectively maybe to be more of an impact in the community for kind of this issue? Gosh, that's um, a good question. And I think it depends on the church. I think it depends on the area. Um, first of all, I would say pray and figure out what the Lord is having you to do. Um, but then you can you can get into your community and see where issues of injustice lie. It's like, you know, how do you exegete your community? We are taught to exegete the scriptural text, but how do I exegete my community? So how do I go about my community and look and see, you know what, this here might be a system or a structure that needs to be redeemed or needs to be destroyed. So when we we see um, like a ton of places or communities that have a bunch of payday loan places, payday loan places, prey on the poor. Usually those places are in black and brown communities by and large. Well, d- when we read the Old Testament, we see that we're not supposed to charge interest to the poor. So how can I get rid of a system or a structure that may be within the community preying on the poor in that community? How can I also, you know, bring my congregation in to teach things like microfinancing or budgeting or entrepreneurial skills? What can we do to help elevate a community out of the poverty that it may find itself in? or to elevate a family out of the the poverty that they may find themselves in. That's one thing. I would say too, another thing is, you know, while many of the calls from leaders is to look outside and go and do the work of justice in these outside communities, well, when we do that, that's awesome and great. And I, I appreciate that. I applaud that. But how are we also looking within our community, just be, like within our faith community, just because your one faith community may be... Um, um, like monoethnic doesn't mean that there aren't issues of injustice within your own community. How can you impact your own community and speak righteously to the issues that are impacting your own community? So I would say, one, exegete your own community, look and see where there are issues of injustice there so that kind of like Micah 6, 8, Micah 6 is talking about the Israelite community. It's not talking about going and building homeless shelters. So how do we look within our community and say, look, these are the issues that are impacting us. This is what we as a faith community need to do. Once we've got gotten some of that, you know, on the up and up, then how do I look out into the broader community and say, hey, look, these are issues of injustice here. You know, are, are people within your church sending their kids to public school where they're being indoctrinated by a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations where, um, some of this oppressor or press narrative is being pushed in and put forward where a lot of the LGBTQ plus, you know, conversation is really impeding or impacting young people. What can your community do with the children who may already be within your community to help um, either, you know, do a homeschool co-op or bring some kind of um, 
more unique conversation to education for the kids within your within your faith community. And if you're already doing that, then what can you do with kids who might be, you know, within your broader community, five to 10 mile radius to help take those kids outside of that structure of indoctrination and say, look, we want to make sure that you have a robust Christian worldview so that you can grow up empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and change your community. Yeah, it's so the ripple effects of this become so overwhelming at times because I feel like if a church isn't teaching the adults, then those adults when they go home aren't teaching those kids and those kids are going off to public school and they're getting indoctrinated. And then before you know it, we're raising up an entire generation and the church is going to wake up and go, oh, where are we at? You know, so well, I, don't I don't even know. know that the church will wake up because yeah. if you know, <laughs> I mean, like it, it would it would literally be a, a dying church at that point. And I'm, mm-hmm. I know and I have faith that God will preserve a remnant that, um, you know, the true church will will continue on. But we have been given instruction. I believe it's in Jude to preserve the faith once for all given to the mm-hmm. saints. And if we have been given that instruction, that starts in our children. Amen. You know, and we raise them up in the faith and in the knowledge of that so that when they grow up, they can in turn give that back to their children. I love it. I love it. So how does how does a church or an organization, a Christian organization, bring you, Monique, in so you can give your presentations? Because I feel like it'd be good for um for you to speak at more places. Yeah, they go to centerforbiblicalunity.com. There's a button on there that says speaking. There is a form that you fill out and someone from our organization will get back to you and begin a conversation on how to have me or Crystal or both of us together come out, um, present, do trainings, speak at a conference. And yeah, it's, it's an easy process. Awesome. Yep. And again, we'll link all that in the description below. So if you're interested in that, go click that link and bring her in because churches, we need to deal with these issues. Hey, Monique, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me.